Normally on Novel Marketing, we talk about how to build your platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. But this is episode 250. We're half the way to 500 episodes, and we're going to do something a little bit different to celebrate. I am going to tell my story. That's right. Normally, I don't talk about myself very much on this podcast, but I ran into a listener uh, several months ago who said she wanted to know more about me. She wanted uh, me to talk more about myself on the podcast, and I was suspicious. I didn't know people really want to hear about me, and I still don't. So if you want to skip this episode because you're not curious about where Thomas Umstead Jr. came from or how the Novel Marketing Podcast came to be, you have my permission. You will not hurt my feelings. But if you stick around, not only will you hear my story, but we also have some fun voicemails from listeners who share their top lessons learned over the last few years of the podcast. And when it comes to my story, I guess the time to start it is back in 1992, when my dad brought uh, to the house his old 8086 green screen computer. Now, this computer was a dinosaur even in 1992. The screen had two colors, green and white, and you had to type commands into it to get it to do anything. For a seven-year-old who struggled with spelling, this proved to be quite a challenge, but a worthy one, because if I could figure out how to get that machine to go, there were games to play. Uh, We got a few computers after that, and a few years later, a family friend uh, helped me build my own computer. I mostly watched, but I also participated, and I got to see the insides of the computer and how it worked. It was a multimedia PC with speakers and a CD-ROM, and for a time, it was the only CD player we had in the house, which meant if we wanted to listen to a CD, we had to do it through those tiny little computer speakers. Now, back then, I was a poor reader and an even worse writer. I was super insecure about my handwriting. I still am, frankly, but I was even worse back then. I didn't know how to spell, and I was terrified of writing anything on paper. Uh, And I'm still a slow reader, actually, which is probably why I like audiobooks. Uh, so much. But back then, I was so insecure about my handwriting and my spelling that I committed to doing everything on the computer. Now, while this may sound like a good idea now, this was not a good idea back then. Uh, Computers uh, were very unreliable in the days of Windows 98. They crashed all the time. And what that meant was that I ended up getting quite the education on how to fix computers. For years, the case on our computer was never open because I was constantly fiddling in the insides of that computer to get it working so I wouldn't have to touch a pencil. Uh, The only thing I used a pencil for was math. Everything else I did on the computer, even if it was 10 times more work. And that weakness of being afraid of spelling ended up turning into a strength in that I really embraced computers and learning to use a computer at an early age. In 1998, when I was 13 years old, I joined a homeschool choir. So I joined this bass section, and it was filled with uh, what would have been called nerds. The thing was, though, is that it was a homeschool choir, and there were no cool kids to tell us just what nerds we were, because everyone was a nerd. And we started dabbling with building websites and web pages. And when our choir director, Kathy Hargis, heard about it, uh, she created a new elected position for the choir called Choir Webmaster. We'd have elections once a year for president and vice president of the choir, and now for Choir Webmaster. And of the nerds, I was the only one to run for that new position, and I won in a landslide. And now our choir director was a savvy operator, and she knew she was about to score a free website in the days when free websites 
websites uh, were really hard to get or impossible to get because it's really expensive to hire somebody to build you a website. But what she may not have realized at the time was that she was also launching my career. Now, that choir website was the first website I ever built, uh, and it was a Microsoft front page monstrosity. <laughs> uh, but it was a real website on the real internet, and I had built it by the time I was 14 years old. Now, the original website I looked is lost to history, but I did find a version from 2002. So this is a few years later, and I have a link to it in the show notes if any of you want to go to the Wayback Machine and check out that ancient website. And uh, one of the things we did with that website is that I submitted it to the Junior Web Awards because I was very proud of this website. I didn't know that it was a front page monstrosity. And uh, the Junior Web Awards presented itself as a web design contest, kind of like the Academy Award. So I submitted my website, and several weeks later, I got back a letter telling me that I had won the gold award. I forwarded it to my choir director, and she bought the corresponding trophy to present to me at our big end-of-the-year concert. I later learned that everyone who applies to this award wins, and the organization exists only to sell trophies. But none of us knew that at the time. We thought this was a real award for a really good website. So a few years later, some homeschool moms in our area Uh, wanted to experiment with this new way of doing school called a co-op. So for years, uh, homeschool parents had taught classes out of their homes or out of churches. You'd have, you know, science class here, and on a different day at a different church, maybe there'd be math class, and this other parent might teach biology out of her home. And the idea with this co-op was to bring all of those parents to teach their once-a-week class all on the same day to save the parents from driving. And and you would hire as many of these teachers or as few of these teachers as you wanted. It was kind of a a la carte way of doing classes. And when I heard about this, I heard that they were looking for teachers to teach classes. So I asked if there was any technology classes that were being prepared. And when I found out that there were none, I offered to teach a web design class because I was an award-winning webmaster after all. (laughs) Sure, I'd never been to a technology class in my life, but I had built several websites at this time, and I'd also served as an intern uh, legislative aide for state representative. It was that kind of thing I did while I was in school. And they were so desperate for teachers that that year they let me teach provided I build them a free website for the organization. And I found that a lot of adults in those days were very willing to trade influence and responsibility for a free website because people were so desperate for a website they could afford. And this gave me a lot of access to the room where it happened, despite the fact that I was a third the age of everyone else there. Uh, in that first semester, we learned HTML, and in the second semester that I taught that class, we learned Dreamweaver. And I say we learned because I stayed a couple of chapters ahead of the other students in the textbook as I, quote, taught, unquote, them how to build websites. And I still remember uh, that those classes were on Tuesdays because on our second or third class of the year was September 11th, 2001. I remember trying to teach a class on HTML when really all I wanted to do was listen to the radio about the attack on our country. I had about half a dozen students in that class, and one of them went on to be an engineer at Intel doing programming uh, full-time. And I'm pretty sure she knew more about HTML than I did by the end of that class. But everyone in that class, all the students, were able to successfully build their own websites uh, by the end of the class. So it was a good uh, good learning experience for all of us. And uh, instead of teaching the next year, I took a semester off of school. I took a semester off of high school to go work as a uh, 
volunteer coordinator for a congressional campaign that had a special election on the other side of the state. Now, I know a lot of you are facing homeschooling for the first time right now because of the pandemic. And I will say, as a homeschool graduate, I received an excellent education that I really couldn't have had if I'd have gone to a traditional school. I wouldn't have been able to take a semester off to work full-time as the media coordinator and volunteer coordinator for a political campaign. I wouldn't have been able to teach a year of high school, although I don't think you can do that anymore. I think that was a fluke of timing. I don't think high school students are allowed to teach uh, high school anymore. But by the time I graduated, I'd owned my own teaching business and worked uh, both in the election side of political world and in the elected side of political world, both on the campaign and in the Capitol. And I had really gotten a very robust education. And I'm very thankful to my parents for homeschooling me and giving me that education. So homeschooling really can work. And I I realize a lot of people are involuntarily having to homeschool, but it's not as bad as you think it is. (laughs) It really can work out. And I'll say the most important thing I learned as a homeschool student is how to learn on my own. I learned how I could take a book and learn a skill from that book without needing a teacher to spoon feed me the information. This is perhaps the most important skill that homeschoolers end up learning. And most of them learn this skill because their moms don't know anything. You think your weakness of not knowing everything is a weakness, but really it can turn into an amazing strength of your students. If you just teach them how to learn on their own, they'll never need a teacher again. Uh, My homeschool education prepared me for a job that at the time did not even exist. There was no such thing as a professional podcaster in those days. And yet I was being crafted and prepared for that job even all the way back then. So I went on to college. And by that time, I was burnt out of building people free websites. I swore I would stay out of IT and become a businessman. My plan was to start a business and do something big and grand, uh, either at the end of college or shortly after I graduated. Uh, Maybe even start a business in college, like this new company, Facebook, that had just emerged. Now, while in college, I felt God calling me to write a book about video game addiction. So I started going to writers' conferences. And I remember running into an author at one of those conferences who lived in my area. And I was so excited to meet a real-life author that I offered to do something for her that I swore I would never do again. And I offered to build her... (gasps) a free website. (laughs) And of course she said yes, and she loved the website and started recommending me to her friends, and I started charging them to build websites. Uh, And suddenly I had an on-the-side website business, but I really didn't want to do websites, so I kept it very much on the side while I was in school. Few people at those conferences were excited about my book. They were way more excited about me building them websites than they were about the book that I had written. I had total strangers writing me checks for new websites right there at the conference. And uh, publishers were just not excited about my book idea, despite the fact that I already had a podcast on the book's topic. I was way before my time in terms of podcasting. No one in Christian publishing knew what a podcast was back in 2007. I would be sitting down with an editor and telling them about my podcast, and they would just blink at me. And finally, they'd be like, what's a podcast? (laughs) If they had the guts to ask. Other times, they would just blink and and move on (laughs) because they just didn't know. I am glad I wrote that book, but like most first books, it wasn't very good, and I'm glad I didn't publish it. I suspect God's purpose for having me write the book was the change that writing it would bring about inside of me, not the change the book would bring about in the world. Writing that book is what led ultimately to my first podcast and my first 
writers' conferences. It's what opened up the world of writing to me and helped me be that kind of bridge between the writing world and the tech world and the marketing world. I learned that just because you are called to write a book doesn't mean you're called to publish a book. Writing that book helped me get to where I am today. I'm glad I wrote it. I'm also glad I didn't publish it. So there I was with the beginnings of a web design business, but I really didn't want to go into web design. I was taking an entrepreneurship class at the time, and I fell in love with the business plan uh, I was required to create as homework. It was our big class project was to create a business plan, and I got an A on that business plan, so surely it was ready for prime time. So I decided to start that business in the real world. (laughs) Uh, The business plan called for taking public domain recordings, public domain books, and burning them on CDs and selling them to homeschoolers. I assumed that homeschoolers drove a lot because they lived far away from urban centers, and they did. I assumed that homeschoolers would be interested in unabridged audiobooks of super old books, and they were. I assumed that homeschoolers would want to listen to them in their cars, and they did. And I assumed that they were unable to listen to MP3s in their cars because it was, after all, only 2008, and they couldn't. Back in 2008, no one knew what Bluetooth was or how to plug their iPod into their car. Uh, Our tagline was, turn your car into a classroom, and it seemed to be the perfect fit for the homeschool market. I made only one critical mistake. I assumed that homeschoolers would be willing to pay for those unabridged books in CD format. They were not. Turns out that CDs are a terrible format for audiobooks, worse than cassette tapes. They only hold about 80 minutes of audio, which is less than a cassette tape. And that means that you need over a dozen CDs for an unabridged Victorian novel. And making things worse, CDs don't retain your playback position like a cassette tape. If you take the CD out, put it back in your car, you start over at the beginning, which means you're committed to 80 minutes of this story before you can take a break and listen to some music. Oh, and creating a dozen CDs of a Victorian novel was going to be expensive. There was no way around it because of how many CDs were involved, which was not a good fit for homeschoolers on only one income, which is almost all homeschoolers. The fact that CDs are worse for audiobooks than cassette tapes is a big reason for why audiobooks are booming so much now. They're gaining the ground they lost during that terrible, awkward adolescence of CDs. Audiobooks did really well in the days of cassette tapes, and CDs almost killed them off. You know, audiobooks are $30, $40 for an audiobook in CD, and very few people are willing to pay that much money for a terrible listening experience. Now that we have apps on our phones and most people are able to listen to their phone on their car, audiobooks are finally having the boom in 2020 that they were never going to have in 2008. In that year that I graduated college, 2008, uh, not only was my business failing, but the economy was collapsing. My grandfather, the inventor of Captain Crunch, died, and my father almost died, and I was also in a courtship with a young woman that year that failed famously. More on that later. Uh, It was a no-good, very bad year. Everything collapsed. My big business idea that I got an A on. I got an A on that business plan. And yet the business idea failed. There's a big difference between getting an A on your business plan and it actually working in the real world. That next year in 2009, I sat down for lunch with a serial entrepreneur and I shared with him 
uh, my frustrations with my failed audiobook business and that somehow I was back in the web design business because the whole time I was doing that audiobook business, authors were still coming to me for websites. And I told him about this new business idea that I had about starting micro news websites and for small communities that didn't have a newspaper. And he sat back and asked, what is your unfair advantage with micro news sites? I responded, I can build websites uh, more cheaply than other people. But other than that, I don't really have one. So he leaned forward and said, how about the author website business? Any unfair advantage there? And I said, I can teach. <laughs> I've already been invited to speak at several conferences on author websites and social media. And anyone else uh, who is competing with me would have to pay for a booth at those conferences. Well, I get flown in for free. I get paid to be there. And I get to speak from the sage. So he leaned back and said, I think you have your answer. Uh, with that conversation in mind, I decided to double down on building websites. Despite all of my best efforts, I was back where I began as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old building websites, except now I was doing it with WordPress, and now I was doing it for money. Just like in high school, being the tech guy gave me a lot of access to influential people. Suddenly, authors, even New York Times bestselling authors, were asking me for advice on how they could sell more books, and I got to help them create plans, and I got to learn what worked and what didn't work from the ground up. Instead of just learning on my own one book, I was learning on hundreds of authors of books, and I got an incredible education helping all of our clients sell more books. Uh, we launched a website called Author Tech Tips, where I blogged on marketing and social media. And in those days, those glorious days of the late 2000s, social media actually helped a few authors get book contracts and may have even helped a few authors sell a few books. It was a very different time when you, what you posted to Facebook actually appeared to all of your Facebook fans. Now, a few years later, I bought AuthorMedia.com for around $1,500, and Author Tech Tips became Author Media. Com. And I had more authors wanting help than I had the ability to help them. <laughs> Word of mouth was spreading. I was speaking at more conferences, and I needed help. So I started hiring webmasters to work with me. First one person, then another, until finally in 2012, I walked into the office and I saw a dozen people there working to craft WordPress websites for authors and helping authors launch and sell more books. But one uh, big challenge that we faced was how expensive it was for us to build websites for authors, especially prolific authors. Uh, the best practice for a website is for each book to have its own web page on the author's website so that Google knows where to send people who are searching for the book. But for an author with three dozen books, this is a lot of work. So we developed a WordPress plugin to use ourselves to help us build those websites faster. And we called it My Book Table. And for the first year or so, we just used it in-house. We just used it ourselves to make our own life easier building author websites. But something was changing in the industry around that time. The Amazon Kindle 4 had just come out and readers for the first time could buy a brand new Kindle for less than $100. And of course, you know, every Black Friday, Amazon would discount it dramatically. And suddenly, millions of Amazon customers are buying Kindles for the first time. And these readers are looking to fill their Kindles with cheap or free books. <laughs> what, and that led them into a world of indie authors that previously had had a hard time connecting with readers. And now we're seeing floods of money come in for their indie books. 
Traditional publishers, on the other hand, got scared and started being more conservative with advances and less adventurous with new authors. Uh, Author Media built mostly websites for traditionally published authors because they were the ones who could afford us. It's a lot easier to pay for a website when you have a $10,000 advance in hand. It's a lot harder to pay for a website when you're paying money instead of getting paid to publish a book. Indie authors have to pay for their editors and their covers, whereas traditional authors got those things for free and money besides. Now, the result was that this new breed of do-it-yourself author, they were building their own websites, and they were doing it with WordPress, which was getting easier and easier to use with each new version of WordPress. So we decided to make a version of my book table for this new breed of do-it-yourself author. And to test the market, to see if there was demand, because I'd learned, test your ideas. Don't just build a huge business and spend tons of money uh, without knowing if there's demand. I learned that lesson the hard way with the, with the audiobook business. So we took my book table and we put it on Kickstarter with the goal of raising $2,500. Well, people got excited about this plugin and they ended up raising over $10,000 to help make my book table happen. And this was the beginning of a major shift for author media where we started targeting indie authors in addition to traditional authors. The same year we kickstarted my book table, I also launched the Novel Marketing Podcast with James L. Rubart, and I started the Bestseller Society with a few other authors. This was a training community for authors, and in addition to developing my book table, we also went on to develop other plugins for authors, my book progress, my speaking events, and my speaking page. The next year, I wrote a blog post titled, Why Courtship is Fundamentally Flawed, and it went viral, especially in the homeschool community. It was a post about my observations of courtship culture and an explanation of why many homeschoolers who wanted to get married were unable to do so. It got over a million page views in around a month, and suddenly I had a whole community of people clamoring for me to write a book about courtship, dating, and relationships. And having worked with authors for all these years, and going through the book writing process before I knew just how much work it was going to be. Not to mention the fact that I was still doing all of these other things with the plugins and the consulting and the websites. So I decided to call everyone's bluff and again went to Kickstarter to see if there was demand for the book. I put the book on Kickstarter for $10,000 and to my surprise, uh, the readers of my blog raised $11,000, forcing me (laughs) to actually write the book which gave me one more thing to do on my already full plate. Not only that, but now that I was no longer Mr. Courtship, I was able to go on dates for the first time in my life at the ripe old age of 29 (laughs) years old. And uh, dating was fun, and it was only a few years before I started going steady with the woman who would become my wife. Uh, She was, interestingly, the first comment on my Courtship blog post and my first kiss. And I loved being married, and soon we were expecting our first child. There was only one problem, and I suspect you know what it is, and it was that I was doing too much. With the exception of the audiobook business, which failed, and the bestseller society, which I sold, nearly everything else I started doing, I was still doing in one way or another. I counted up the areas of responsibility in my life, and I realized I had at least 18 areas of responsibility 
This included things like running meetup groups, uh, sitting on the board of directors for nonprofits, uh, hosting what came to be five podcasts. I don't know what I was thinking, but at one time I was hosting five podcasts. I served as the fractional marketing director for a marketing company, and I traveled the world speaking, and I was dabbling in real estate and on and on. And oh yeah, I was a literary agent too. Uh, Even if I wasn't married, I was doing too much. And even if we didn't have a baby on the way, uh, I was doing too much. And what's worse, since I was doing so many of these things, none of them were flourishing. I was failing by the numbers at pretty much everything I was doing. Everything needed more attention than I could give it, and everything was sad, and I was miserable. Until finally, one day in 2019, I was so overwhelmed with everything I needed to do, I couldn't get out of bed. I laid there for an entire day, unable to decide what to work on next, and completely unmotivated. This was the worst breakdown I'd had up to that point, and it wasn't the first. My mental state was deteriorating and so was my health. I was spread entirely too thin and something had to change. Now, around this time, I had spoken in Switzerland uh, because why not speak in Switzerland (laughs) when you're doing all of these things? Uh, I said yes to everything. Somebody invited me to speak to Switzerland. Of course, I'll come and speak to a writer's conference in Switzerland. But one benefit of me going was I came across the 700-year-old tree that had been pruned down to its nubs. This was this huge tree. Probably three people holding hands couldn't circle this tree. And yet it had been pruned down to its very nubs. And yet if you looked at those nubs closely, you could see them bursting with new life, bursting with branches. And I realized that needed to be me. I needed Aslan to tear away the layers of dragon flesh to find the human underneath. I needed to figure out who I wanted to be. Because I had too many identities, too many roles, I was doing too many things. And around this time, James Rubart, my co-host, was going through a similar kind of series of crisis of self-evaluation. Because he also was spread too thin. And it resulted in Jim stepping away from hosting the podcast. And I set myself a goal of continuing the podcast for a time and getting down to one business card by the time I turned 35. So I ranked all of my activities in a spreadsheet, and then I had a column for how easy they were, how much money they made, and how much joy I had while doing them. So high scores were good. If something was easy, brought a lot of joy, and made a lot of money, that was a thing I wanted to keep doing. Obviously, nothing is high in all of those things because we have to work, we have to sweat, uh, but some things were low in everything. It was not joyful, it was not easy, and it didn't make money. Those were the things that were easy to cut. But then came the things that were harder to cut. Things like the plugins that did bring in money, but didn't bring in a lot of joy and were a distraction of the other things that I was doing. So I started cutting things. I sold the plugins to Stormhill Media. I stepped down from being a literary agent. I quit two of my uh, podcasts and then quit another one. So I was down to just two podcasts. I'm not going to lie. This was a painful process. Pruning is hard work because it's doing work to make less money. You can't just quit something. When you have an area of responsibility, you have an obligation to the people uh, that were benefiting from whatever you were doing to make sure that they're well taken care of. So I had all of these literary agent clients and I had to find a new place for them. (laughs) And there was a transition period uh, from me to the next agent. And this was all work 
that took energy and time, but it brought, didn't just bring in no money, it brought in negative money. <laughs> when I sold the plugins, I went from having something that made me money to having something that made me less money. And it was a difficult time. And it was it was a hard time because even though these things weren't thriving, they all were alive and they, and they were all trickles of revenue. And I'm there kind of hacking away at things as best I can. And so far I've cut about two thirds of my areas of responsibility. And it's interesting because as I'm cutting, I'm, I'm kind of reevaluating the things that are still on my kind of list of tasks. And one question was, what's going to happen with novel marketing, <laughs> right? It would always scored high on joy. I've always enjoyed doing this podcast, and I really enjoy interacting with listeners, those of you who send in messages either through the website or Facebook or on Patreon or through Slack. I have lots of ways of interacting with the listeners. I really enjoy doing that. But for a long time, the show didn't bring in very much money. It wasn't until uh, we started on Patreon and we started getting patrons that supported the show financially that suddenly it started scoring better in that money category (laughs) because the show's always been a lot of work. So it's never super easy to put a podcast episode uh, together, especially when you're doing a lot of research and making sure that what you're saying isn't nonsense, <laughs> which uh, is harder to do than you might think, especially to somebody who's prone to nonsense. So instead, I've been pruning other things around novel marketing, which has given me more energy to put into the podcast. Novel marketing was never my number one project. When it started in 2013, it wasn't even the first thing I started that year. <laughs> I started a whole other business at the same time, not to mention the plug-in product line. So novel marketing as a podcast has always been kind of this like abandoned project that always needed more attention than it deserved. That is until 2020. Because of the patronage and because of the pruning, novel marketing has kind of remained as the one thing that I'm doing. It's the core branch that I'm trying to keep on the tree. And uh, having more energy has allowed me to put more time into the podcast. And uh, this has meant, you know, there's now blog posts for every new episode. And I'm working harder on making the episodes more valuable, higher content to noise ratio. Uh, It's hard for me to judge whether that additional effort has led to an improvement of quality. Uh, I guess that would be up to you (laughs) to judge if you think uh, these episodes now are better than the episodes 100 episodes ago, because I am now compensating for the the lack of a co-host. So maybe it's no better. I'm just doing twice the work. Uh, But overall, I still feel like I'm recovering from that breakdown last year. My physical health is still bad, and I don't feel as confident as I used to be. As I tell the story, I almost don't recognize that 16-year-old who thought he could teach a high school class. Uh, One thing that has helped me uh, were the masterminds in my mastermind group who've walked with me for the last seven years through this process. And then uh, the other thing that's helped me is you, the podcast listeners, especially those of you who support the show financially. This has been a huge source of support and encouragement. And your patronage has made me feel like maybe I don't have to do a million things to provide for my family. Maybe I can do just what I love doing, which is teaching, and that would be enough. You know, while I enjoy building websites for someone, I much more enjoy uh, seeing the confidence in their eyes after they've learned how to build their own website. It's a feeling of power and influence. And I love giving people that feeling where no longer are they helpless. No longer do they have to beg or pay for a website. They can do it themselves. They have that power 
in their own hands. I want to teach authors how to fish more than I want to sell them fish, even though there's a lot more money in selling fish. So you know, a few final thoughts. You know, Growing up, adults saw my hustle and they expected me to run for political office or run some big company. And I used to want those things too. And I've had to let those dreams die. And I've stepped back completely from politics after my breakdown. I've purged every political thing I was doing. <laughs> None of it brought enough joy and it never brought any money and it was work on my chart. It was no good. <laughs> Those were the things at the very bottom. And I no longer run a big company. And now my goals are different. I want to spend time with my family and get my mental and physical health back. And I want to record podcasts, uh, you know, educational podcasts and make courses. And I want that to be enough. I don't know if it can be, but I would love for it to be. Uh, my little ones will only be little for a short time and I don't want to miss it. I also want to live to see them grow up and that means I have to be healthy mentally and physically to be there for them. And while the lockdown has been hard with two stir-crazy babies, and believe me, it has been, uh, it's also been a chance to spend more time with my wife and kids, which has been really precious. And I'm really thankful to have a family uh, to be able to spend my lockdown with. And I'm still in the process of getting down to that one business card by the time I turn 35, which is just a couple of months away. <laughs> I turned 35 in November. So I'll let you know how it goes. If uh, I'll put updates in these episodes from time to time to let you know how I'm doing. Anyway, that is where novel marketing came from. In some ways, novel marketing goes back to 2013, but in other ways, I feel like novel marketing is brand new, that it was just born in 2020 in the sense that it's just now becoming my number one project. The, the podcast and the courses, which were side gigs, are now my main gig. And we'll see if we're able to make that work. <laughs> we'll see if there is interest in getting that kind of help and enough interest where I don't have to take on side projects to support this as the hobby. I would like to thank everyone who sent in congratulations and lessons learned. I got way more recordings than I have time to share in this episode. So what I plan to do is I'll play some of them now, and I'll play others kind of at the end of episodes moving forward, because I love these pieces of encouragement. I think hopefully they'd be encouraging to other listeners to see that the successes that other authors have had. And I just want to say one more time how much I appreciate not just you listening, but also those of you who shared the podcast and support the podcast. I could not do this without you. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. So with that, I will play for you some of the highlights that other authors have sent in. Hi, Thomas. Congratulations on 250 episodes. My name is Linda Bouchard, and my forthcoming children's book is titled The Witches Three count on me. I've learned so much from your wonderful podcasts over the last years, but mostly I've learned the value of time and how to make the most of the time I spend each day writing. You shared a sermon you heard by an old man and how he said that time was like a wheelbarrow full of gems. That resonated with me because Time is precious, so thank you for teaching me how to use time that I devote to my writing more wisely, and I look forward to your next 250 podcasts. This is Jamie Foley, author of Ember Hawk, and I learned how to lasso keywords on novel marketing. Hey there. 
This is William Timothy Murray, author of the epic fantasy, The Year of the Red Door. I've learned so much from novel marketing podcasts that it's hard to pick any one thing that stands out above all others. But I must say that episode 68, Where to Spend Your Marketing Money, really put me on the right track and steered me away from wasteful marketing efforts. Novel marketing continues to deliver actionable information that helps authors sell more books and get more readers. Congratulations, Novel Marketing, for reaching this milestone, and thank you so much. Hi, my name is Shauna E. Black. I'm the author of The Phantom Nightingale, and one thing I have learned from your show are the fascinating trends that will likely come from COVID-19. Hi, Thomas. My name is Lori Stanley Roloveld, and the name of my book is The Art of Hard Conversations, Biblical Tools for the Tough Talks That Matter. I've learned so many things from listening to your podcast, but one episode in particular, an interview with David Rawlings on his marketing and what he learned about marketing really stuck with me, especially learned, you know, the idea that um, I need to be, think of what my unique strengths are. Like he looked at his um, strengths being from Australia and letting people in on all things Australian and his videos. And then to really consider where he was investing his marketing dollars and to be careful about um, choosing the right opportunity instead of just scattershotting things. Hi, this is Robin Luftig. I wrote the book Ladies of the Fire, my first novel. And one of the things that I learned from novel marketing that knocked my socks off was how to focus on the importance of your website. That is just huge. I'm Cheryl Elton, and my book is Pathway of Peace, Living in a Growing Relationship with Christ. And two of the episodes I found especially meaningful were number 164 and 165, Getting Reading Clubs to Choose My Book and Creating Resources for Those Book Readers. In particular, the discussion questions and tips on crafting a really tremendous leader's guide were so, so helpful. I'm Jonathan Scherger, and I am the author of the Shades of Black series, as well as the Exorcism of Frosty the Snowman. Using Thomas's advice from NMP, my Kickstarter overfunded by 358%, and I was able to fund an audiobook version as well. My name is Omri Cortadino. Uh, my work in progress is the Eventide Trilogy. I have been uh, writing a children's picture book, and it's about to be published. And it wasn't until I listened to your podcast on how to spend less time marketing your book that I realized a missing detail. At the end of the podcast, you mentioned your friendly toddler and how she hasn't had the opportunity to be with other children her age. And it struck me that uh, children all around the world are missing that socialization and the facial cues that come um, from smiles and things that we are now covering up while wearing masks. As a writer, I feel challenged to infuse more friendly and warmth into my stories. So thank you for that and for the many other hours of important, informative podcasts. Yeah, hi, this is Michael Jack Webb. Um, my book title is Infernal Gates, Book One of the War of Men and Angels. And I've learned three important things uh, 
listening to novel marketing. Number one, how to have an effective book launch. Number two, how to do effective marketing without going crazy. And number three, how to create the most effective website. This is Roger Lowther, author of The Broken Leaf. I am so thankful for the Novel Marketing Podcast for showing me how doing a podcast can be an important part of getting my message and my stories out there as a nonfiction writer. Uh, Not only have they shown me how to do it step by step, but it's been a constant source of encouragement along the way. Thanks again to all of you who sent in encouraging messages and highlights of what you've learned. I will share more of these after future episodes. And so if you didn't get your message featured, listen, you may hear it in a future episode. And if you want to send in a highlight of something you've learned on the Novel Marketing Podcast, you can do that at novelmarketing.com. To get the blog version of this episode uh, or to get new episodes delivered to your phone automatically on a special app, visit novelmarketing.com. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.